doing an undergrad doing a master's doing a phd it's not something that comes multiple times in your life it comes once where you know you're you're young enough with limited and i say that in quotations at at that stage for you to to fail so fail you know, fail hard fail fast and learn from that you know your ideas might not pan out but if you're resilient enough to continue being curious and continuing to explore what you know what new ideas can come out or continue talking to more people i think that will hold you in, in good stead one of the trends that we're seeing is the broader applicability of the, the body's own immune response in driving disease pathogenesis Welcome back to Spindle, the show where we speak to driven and exciting individuals in science to highlight the many paths available to science students. Last time we spoke to Bharat about his path to venture capital, his thoughts on the role of an undergraduate degree, and networking. This time we'll be speaking to him about hallmarks of successful young founders, new problems and areas for the next generation of founders, and the evolving relationship between biology and technology. All right, Bharat, let's talk about COVID-19 and students graduating in the coming years. They'll be entering a super competitive job market. And so how can students start preparing themselves from now to better position themselves for that reality? I mean, look, COVID is unprecedented. Right? Absolutely no one is no one knows what to do through COVID. And so I I I feel for the undergrads that are coming through this. I think there's a, there's some broad understanding from companies that are hiring, for example, there might be some difficulties in 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 getting the talent both in terms of the competitiveness as well as some of the gaps that might exist you know we are we are hiring right now for a bunch of roles and that's something that we're seeing consistently through a, a number of the applicants as well you know i would i would take covid as sort of an an externality that's unpredictable but the and and the the core focus of your resume if you will should should be not related to covid right if if you're looking for the kind of kind of role that you want to get into post your undergrad whether it's investment banking consulting whatever it is one summer of preparing your resume would not have been sufficient anyway and all you've lost right now is one summer right that's something that you should have been working on in your prior summers throughout the year as well throughout the prior you know one to four years of your undergrad so i would use that and put that as as something that's more I I would bring that up a little bit more and rather than saying I have lost an opportunity during covid. So it goes back to goes back to what I said earlier about thinking short term versus long term. People that are thought long term should be sufficiently well covered in in how their resume is being built out rather than those that have been thinking short term and they're saying how do I fill up this summer. Sounds good. Now I want to transition into your work as a venture capitalist. You mentioned previously that part of the reason you're interested in VC is because it allows you to explore a lot of different avenues in science and to learn about a lot of different technologies. So what does your work look like nowadays as opposed to a few years ago and how does it change from day to day? Let me give you the sort of long answer to that. I I joined the BDC as an analyst many many years ago. I've sort of grown up through the ranks and I'm now a principal. And the the role differs significantly through each of these different different companies through each of these different titles if you will um, most people join as an analyst uh, as an analyst what you're doing is trying to add value to the fund in terms of your ability to you know independent independently run due diligence right to go out there and source new ideas to help the fund strategize what 
the future of certain areas will look like. And so that's a large part of what you're trying to build out, adding value to the fund while learning things like, you know, corporate governance, what legal, what legal uh, documents can look like, what should be negotiated, what should not be negotiated. As you go through that, that sort of, you know, adding, adding value to the fund changes, it changes in its role. Now, as a principal, my role is different. You know, I need to, I need to start bringing in deals. I need to start leading deals and closing deals in order to add value to the fund and start investing some of the money. And so I tap into analysts and I tell my analysts, look, you know, go out and try to identify what the market can look like. Go out and try to identify what some of the risks are. What are the other competitors doing? That sort of thing. So that's how the role evolves. So, so given that, you know, my current day-to-day versus what I would have done in the past, my current day-to-day involves a lot of, you know, working on trying to close the couple of deals that, that I'm working on right now. Speaking with the different parties, trying to negotiate term sheets and license agreements so that we can we can close the close the deal and bring that into the portfolio. Also working with existing portfolio companies in terms of you know strategizing and making sure that we talked about COVID, making sure that there's been limited impact due to COVID on clinical trial plans or manufacturing plans, for example. So it's very company related. I that so that's about you know let's say thirty to forty percent of my time. The other 20 to 30% of our time is sort of thinking about the future. You know, what's, what are major trends that are out there in, in, in the market? And how can I start identifying either academics that are working on this or companies that are working on this? And how do I start building a relationship with them in order to bring them onto, bring them as, bring them into our portfolio? The rest of the time is sort of thinking broadly about, you know, what, what's, what's the next fund look like? So that's about 10 to 15% of my fund. So it's sort of LP reporting, thinking about what the next fund can look like and making sure that all of the operations are set up to, to get us to the next fund. Perfect. And through the many years you've been in consulting and venture capital, what are some of the hallmarks that you've seen of successful young founders? Is there such a thing as being cut for entrepreneurship in the health space or is that something anybody can pursue? I think, I think anybody can become an entrepreneur, right? There's no, there's no special gene. There's nothing about that. I think the one thing that's really important is just, you know, go, going back to what looks like looks like one of the themes of this discussion is curiosity, right? May, never saying, I know everything. Always saying, there's something more I can learn and where can I learn that from? Always be learning, right? You know, some, some of my colleagues in, in, in the fund have been in the space for about 20 plus years and they're, le- and they're still learning day in and day out. Uh, I'm I'm still learning day in and day out, and I'm sure that there's other people that are learning day in and day out as well. So always being open to learning is something that's the hallmark of of any person that 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 we speak to and and we potentially invest in. So I think that's something that's critical. Also, you know, resilience, uh, and I think all of these are tied up. So if you're naturally curious, you start to go after after new programs and and talk to talk to more people, and you will get rejected. You know, your ideas might not pan out. But if you're resilient enough to continue being curious and continuing to explore what you know what new ideas can come out or continue talking to more people, I think that'll hold you in, in good stead. All right. And so through Amplitude and through BDC, you've seen plenty of new companies in the precision medicine and next generation medical devices space. You spoke earlier about how you spend a significant amount of your time looking at new trends. So what are some big problems or ideas that you see now in the health space that the next generation of founders academics and researchers should consider working on uh yeah for sure i mean uh, how much how much time do you have 
right? I think there's 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 a lot of there's a lot of trends that that we're looking at. You know, this this goes back to to you know your question about what you're good at versus you know what what you're passionate about. One of the trends that I have seen broadly, and I don't know if it's hindsight or because I'm biased. Um, you know, I have a background in immunology, right? Because because I I truly love immunology and I I love to understand how the body works. And one of the trends that we're seeing is the broader applicability of immunology or the, the the body's own immune response in driving disease pathogenesis you know most people think of the immune system as just protecting against viruses but the immune system plays a role in cancer immune system plays a role now they think in in, in cns diseases as well in gi diseases in metabolic diseases in a broad set of diseases and no one's ever explored any of that with immuno oncology over the last five years there's been an increasing trend towards using the immuno immune response against oncology but the immune response against other diseases like fibrosis against cns against you know, gi conditions for example that's something that's to not the expert so i think that's a major trend where you know you take you you're never reinventing the wheel you're just taking the wheel that's been created and trying to build something upon that a new car upon that as well and so i think that's the, that's the space we're in it's taking immunology that you know that's been trialed in oncology and applying it to different uh, other diseases in order to see if there's an if there's a therapeutic benefit with targeting the immune response so i think that's one of the biggest trends again all of this i'm talking about biotech the the other major trend that i'm seeing is you know i th- i think that the era of you know one tre- one drug for all is it doesn't doesn't exist anymore you know we have truly understand understood how biology works and you understand that it's a multi factorial approach the disease is a multi factorial and so you really need to understand genetics behind a certain disease and then target therapeutics against those specific genetic variants and you know we just we just did a deal in deep genomics which is going after exactly that you know certain rare diseases have disease and so let's develop therapies against those patients in order to get better outcomes um one of our other investments is in repair therapeutics which looks not just at you know not not just as cancer as a single entity but looks to see if cancer cells have certain mutations that allows them to escape existing therapies so therefore how can you target these genetic markers with with something called synthetic lethality with another drug for example so you can have a, a double knockout of the cell and therefore help prevent that treatment from going on so it's not just you have pancreatic cancer here's chemotherapy but it's okay you have pancreatic cancer okay what genetic mutation do you have okay how can we t- target disease target drugs against that specific genetic mutation once that's done what other cancers have that genetic mutation and how can we target these cancers more broadly as well so it's it's going narrow and then going broad uh, in the medtech space you know one thing one trend that we're seeing is it's not enough to just say you know here's here's here here here's a new uh, knee implant right we want to see knee implants that are speaking we want to see implants are providing feedback to physicians for whether the implant is working or not it's not just enough to say you know to take a to take a, a new camera and say you have a disease but it's to provide ai to allow for the academic or for the the researcher or the physician to say you have this disease this is the likelihood of you know progression or a remission or whatever it is and here's the treatment that's being approached as well so it's not you, you and and this is something that applies broadly as well it's not enough to just say what see what you say to say what you see but it is to provide an outcome to what you're seeing as well 
and that goes back to adding value right um, you want a medical a med device that adds value not just says what you're seeing so that and as i mentioned earlier goes back to you know, what i recommend to undergrads as well always think about adding value to some extent sounds good and on your blog i read a piece that you wrote about biology and technology around the idea that at one point they used to be almost mutually exclusive entities but nowadays they're becoming increasingly intertwined with complex biology requiring technological solutions and those technological inferences requiring biological validation so maybe speak to the interplay between technology and biology as you see it yeah yeah for sure and and you know as i mentioned biology is ridiculously complicated it's impossible to look at look at a cell and say a cell is doing this because it's probably doing a million other things at the same time to gi- to give you an example sort of you know going back into into biological history mendel and his his p experiments effectively said you know you've got if if you've got a tall p plant then you've got this gene if you've got a short p plant you've got this gene if you've got a you know a wrinkled p then it's this gene if you've got a smooth p it's this gene that sort of simplicity doesn't exist anymore now you've got diseases that are being caused by you know 20 to 30 different genes where single nucleotide polymorphisms across each of these each of these genes can have a different pathogenic variation of the disease itself that's something that is impossible for any person to to design experiment around or to try to fully nail down so you need it you need to start bringing in bioinformatic tools in order to fully comprehend how all of these different variations of genetic markers are playing a role in pathogenesis so that's a very simple example of you know how tech can really help out in biology but at the same time you know you can you can design a software that will tell you you know if you have these x x mutations in this gene and y mutations in this gene then you're likely to have z disease right that's a a, a recommendation you really need to still prove that out with biology so once this, the 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 computers spit out that hypothesis you still need to go and design cell experiments mouse experiments you know other genetic knock and knockout in order to confirm what the software has shown you and you know deep genomics as i go back to that that's that, a great example of that uh, there are the the lead program is in wilson's disease and wilson's disease the gene is a huge gene where there's something like 500 different mutations that have been identified so these guys have like these guys have used ai to identify one uh, mutation that causes disease in certain subset of patients right but in order to confirm that that mutation does cause the, the disease you need to go into sort of old school biology build out cell culture models build out animal models in order to confirm confirm that that mutation is actually causing the disease and that that mutation is consistent across various different uh, genotypes and phenotypes in in order to track that disease so you know biology is complex tech can help out in breaking down that complexity but you still need sort of old school biology to confirm that that hypothesis previously you mentioned the idea of building with a bigger picture in mind so not just going after publications as students but rather researching to see where the problems lie and how you can address them so how does that approach change as an academic or as a researcher when you're trying to build something for a commercialization as opposed to when you're trying to put something together for a paper and the extension to that is how do you in your role identify academics that you feel are doing research that can be commercialized i think i think it really depends right not all research needs to be commercialized and not all commercial 
applicability needs to come from research that is being driven for that cause. I think there's still a lot of value in exploring biology for the sake of biology, and sometimes breakthroughs come as a byproduct of that. Right? PD1, for example, I don't think anyone ever said, you know, I'm going to look at PD1 because I want to st- I want to create Savali, uh, not Savali, sorry, uh, I want to create um, Kitruda. Right? It was rather a curiosity to understand, you know, what's happening in these patients, where the immune system, uh, the immune response is enough. Oh, here's PD1. Oh. You know, turns out that generating an antibody to PD-1 has an immune response. So it's sort of that iterative process that that happens sometimes. So you know, to to answer your question, it's you you need to spend a lot of time looking at a lot of different scientific experiments and trying to understand what works and what doesn't. And different VCs different VCs look at it, and different VCs come to different conclusions. Right? Some VCs might look at it and say, ah, that'll never work. Other VCs might look at it and say, oh, actually, you know what? That's something that might be interesting. I'll take a chance at that. So it's really hard to predict what will work and what will not. I think you know if you're an academic, you know, go back to doing what you're good at and what you're passionate in, right? Think about sort of at the back of your head what's the potential commercialization angle to this. But I wouldn't keep that as the focus. Think, do something that you think is breaking new biology. Every single university now has a tech transfer office. You know, every single University has a bunch of academics that have been there, done that, in taking commercial programs too. So I would recommend to the academics to go talk to them, find out what worked, what didn't, and who, which VCs they talked to and which VCs they didn't, to get a better sense of that. Because it's hard to really tell, you know, if you do this, a VC will take it, or if you don't do this, a VC won't take it. Perfect. And just before we wrap up, what advice would you give to your 20-year-old self, thinking back? Yeah, so my so my 20-year... 20-year-old self, I was in my third year of undergrad. Right? I I had no idea. I was still sort of really focused on just getting through an undergrad, working sort of one lab at a time, trying to trying to move something forward. I wasn't networking. I wasn't thinking bigger picture. You know, I was thinking I want to be an academic and that's it. I didn't even consider what other options were there. So what I recommend to my 20-year-old self is, you know, go talk to people with Go talk to people at different backgrounds who have done completely different things. Just have a coffee with them. Just have a chat with them. You, know, you don't have to do what they're doing, but just know that there are optionalities out there that will help you help you succeed. You know, for for example, um, thinking about the short term versus long term thing. You know, at the end of my PhD and and even during my PhD, you know, sort of every year of the four years I was in my PhD, I was applying to consulting roles, and every year I was rejected from them because. I realized when I was doing my PhD that I wanted to get into consulting as this real-world experience. I, w- I, d- I hadn't thought of it in advance. And so I hadn't built up, built up my resume to get the best chance of success at that consulting gig that I was applying to at the time. So it was very short-term thinking. Rather, I would have just told myself, you know, think of, let me take a second. 20-year-old self, I would have told him, you know, find out what career options are there. I'm sure consulting would have come up at some point. I'd have talked to a couple of people and found out what they did. And I would have started doing what I ended up doing much later on at a much earlier age, you know, to get the necessary experience in order to get the best chance of success in consulting earlier on rather than later on. So, you know, long-winded way of saying curiosity, networking, and, you know, trying to add value to people. All right, great. And do you have anything uh, to add that maybe we didn't cover that you think may be of value to an undergraduate population or even a master's or PhD population? No, I mean, look, I think I think the fact that 
know, if you're doing an undergrad, if you're doing a master's, if you're doing a PhD, you're, you're already ahead of the curve and you're in a fortunate position to be there. So, you know, take, take maximum advantage of that. You know, doing an undergrad, doing a master's, doing a PhD, it's not something that comes multiple times in your life. It comes once where, you know, you're, you're young enough with limited, and I say that in quotations, at, at that stage for you to, to fail. So fail, you know, fail hard, fail fast and learn from that. Don't be afraid of failure. We'd like to thank Bharat for taking the time to be on the show. If you have any questions or feedback for the Spindle team, be sure to reach out to us through the form in the show description. Thanks for listening to today's episode of Spindle. See you next time.